Amen. Now, the kids, kindergarten through second grade, if you want to start making your way to the library for your uh, story time. And as you go, uh, other kids, you'll want to make sure you have the bulletin and be listening to fill that out. And uh, adults, it'll be really helpful for you as well to have the bulletin. And uh, in there, I've got formatted Exodus 20, our sermon passage. And so that'll be helpful to follow along. We're going through Exodus 20, and we're doing an extended series starting last week on the Ten Commandments. And as the kids go, they can be thinking if they're listening, you can be thinking, uh, learning to share can be quite the challenge. So kids, you can think of there's certain things that you have a real hard time sharing. Now we have four kids, they're 11, 10, 7, and 6, and uh, learning to share has been one of our constant struggles over the last decade of our life. And I knew it would be a challenge, but there's some aspects of learning to share that I wasn't quite ready to, uh, to deal with. And uh, this was humorously illustrated to me when our youngest, our, our baby, who's six now, uh, and if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard Cynthia share how much she loves babies and gave the wonderful announcement. And one of the perks of our jobs is lots of uh, infants come into our lives and one of her great thrills in life. It makes her entire month when she gets to babysit a newborn baby. And uh, when, we had, when it, we have these infants come in, I'd be intrigued to, to watch and analyze our youngest, our baby, and see, all right, how's he going to do? And from his perspective, you have these infant invaders who are now invading his space and now taking over his time with mommy. How would he respond? And I was always pleasantly surprised that he'd often do really well. But there'd be times where, uh, don't worry parents, no infant was ever hurt, but... Like you'd walk in and, you know, uh, the, the baby would be crying. And then he'd run over and get his gigantic Tyrannosaurus Rex and dump it into the back and play. And he'd say, oh, okay, yes, good, you're right. When friends come over, we have to share our toys with our friends. But let's not share this one that's the same size as the child and has sharp, jagged claws and teeth. So, yes, we have to share, but we don't share this. Or the baby be crying and mommy say, oh, he's hungry. And I know, and run into the pantry and the man can eat peanuts, like his body weight in peanuts. And then come over with peanuts and just kind of dump them in front of the baby and say, oh, yeah, yes. Could you, like, we, we share our food with our friends, but not, not this food. We have to, you know, there's a lot of calculations you have to make. Like you have to look, all right, do, does this friend have teeth or not? And, you know, the whole world opens up once you have teeth, but until then, your, your opportunities are restricted. So we share our food with our friends, but not this food. And so you think about it from a perspective of a two-year-old. Like, this is a hard lesson to learn, even when you're trying to do it right. And then you go and you, you grow and you realize it's not just like things you have to learn to share. Sometimes uh, it's information you have to learn what's appropriate to share and what's not appropriate to share. And we even have a, an acronym. You know, we have an acronym for everything. As they have TMI. You, you haven't learned the lesson that you're sharing right now too much information. And about 20 years ago, this was very humorously brought out. I was a children's, youth and children's minister at our small country church in Georgia where I grew up. And 
One of my favorite things every week, we would have the children's sermon. So right before the children would go to their kind of story time, we'd, they'd all come up front and we'd have the children's sermon with Pastor Ben. And one of my, I didn't have kids then, so uh, one of my delights was trying to see what I could draw out of them to embarrass. Uh, you know, all the parents were on pins and needles when the kids started talking publicly. And one day I said, all right, kids, what we're going to learn in our lesson is today we're talking about Jesus's command to love your enemy. Now, do any of you know what an enemy is? And, and not a very well thought out question, because instantly one of the kids' hands shot up and says, oh, I know what an enemy is. My dad has an enemy and it's Mr. And then he fires out the name. And this is a small country town. Everybody knows. And then that started this chorus of, oh, he's the worst. My mom thinks that he's and it just started going and I could not like the cat was out of the bag and there was no getting it back in and we just had to grab everyone and run because <laughs> I mean sometimes like you there's things you should share and there's other things you should not share we had a friend who was a retired kindergarten teacher, and on the first week of class, she'd always send home with the parents, says, I'll make you a deal. I won't believe everything they say about you if you don't believe everything they say about me. Some things should be shared and some things should not. And this first commandment is a foundational commandment, and here God is telling us, I, there's certain things that I am not willing to share. This is what I'm not willing to share. And God, by his very nature, his nature is one of the words is he is generous and he is good. The goodness of the Lord. And he shares with both his children and the world, his common grace. He sends rain down on the just and the unjust and sends the sunshine and his mercy on people. And everyone is made in his image. But there's just certain things that he is not willing to share. The passage that Joe mentioned earlier, Isaiah 42, you know, goes on to say that I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. My praise, my worship, I will not give to a carved idol. So we're going to pause and we're going to look at this commandment because in many ways this commandment is an is a, is a umbrella over all the others and we're going to think, all right, what does God say about what he will not share. But let's first, so let's just kind of remember where we are, because this commandment uh, kind of situates us. So the story this far, as we've seen in Exodus as we were going through, that God first is, he's the deliverer, and that he, he cares for his people, he loves them, he hears them when they're in pain, and he's come down to deliver them, and the people are to respond in joyful, thankful, grateful worship for who he is and what he's done for them. And at the beginning of the book, God appears in this burning bush at Mount Sinai, at this mountain, and he appears to Moses, and now he has appeared to all of the people to establish his covenant with them, and now not just the the bush is burning and speaks, but the whole mountain is ablaze, and it, the entire mountain now is holy ground, and then God speaks. So the first thing we do, we're, and we're going to do this kind of, we'll have this structure every week, and let's just first read through the Ten Commandments, and I just want you to start noticing things. Just notice. And sorry, the type's kind of small, so I'll see if I can... Then God spoke all these words, saying, 
I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of Yahweh your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the seventh day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All right, so as we just kind of read through and kind of get the picture and see it in your mind, because there's a couple things I just want you to think about, just kind of notice. And, and one question is, you know, we all call this the Ten Commandments, but even then, you know, are there, there ten? All right, boys, listen, because this would be one of the trick questions. How many commands are there? And you look through and it's just interesting. So ten times, you got them underlined, all the different imperatives. It's actually 14 of them. And numbers matter, so every time you hear this, say, huh, that's interesting. So ten times there's, uh, you shall not, so the negative, you shall not. But there's 14 total commands. And then in the first commands, one through four, there's seven. And then five through ten, there's seven. Remember here, number seven, I mean, this is the number of creation. This is the number of recreation. This is the number of design and intention and proper order. But then there's these ten different uh, commands of you shall not. It's worth pausing and thinking, I, I, I wonder why the emphasis is on the negative. You shall not. And then you wonder, right, could it be that this is just uh, the proper stage that the people of God are in or in their develop it, development and maturation? You know, there's actually yesterday, our 11-year-old sent her mother and her father a uh, YouTube video. And it was a comical uh, video of all the different ways that moms say no to their kids. It seemed like it was nine minutes long of all the different ways we say no. And you have young kids, do you feel like there's been seasons in life where I feel like the only thing that ever comes out of my mouth is no, don't, stop, why? And so you wonder, right, is it just because the people have got this stage or in the, you know, there is a maturation of the development that moves throughout history. So you can even see the development of the priesthood, the establishment of the priesthood. God lays down all the directives. This is exactly what you do. You do this, 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 this. You obey. And then it progressed in the time of kings, and the time of kings is the age of wisdom, where you're supposed to look at the world and you're supposed to put pieces together and understand how things work. 
And then it culminates in the age of the prophets where you're now drawn into the council, of the, the heavenly council, and then you then speak on God's behalf. So you wonder, all right, is there just an element of development where it just begins with the, the negations? Or could it be the fact that in many ways um, the negations are a lot more expansive than the positive commands? So you can think about like in the Garden of Eden. God gave them one command and it was a negative. Don't eat this tree. But then what that meant is everything else is open and fair game. So if you say, like if you come over, like if we tell our kids we're leaving and the, the only rule is don't eat the ice cream. I mean, that means everything else in the pantry is fair game. And so is it expansive? So why? That's a question we'll think through. And you think through the numbers. One thing is we even frame it. What I want you to notice is notice how it begins. Notice the very first word. Or actually, even before the first commandment, it says, then God spoke. What's interesting, you do a little reading assignment or uh, experiment as go through uh, the first five books of the, the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, and everywhere, uh, is where everywhere it says, and God said... You can just like underline it. One of my Bibles, I underlined it in green everywhere. And then you start flipping through and you'll just see green everywhere. And what's interesting is nearly every single time, I haven't, this isn't exact, so I need, I need a research assistant for the Trinity research team. But I think just about every single time there's a reference. And God said to Abraham, and God said to Adam, and God said to Cain, and God said to Moses. I think this might be the only time in the Pentateuch where it's and God said, and there's no clear reference. And so then the question is, okay, who's he talking to? The whole nation is gathered, and then you notice all the yous. We've kind of joked before that we need a southern translation to help get you a lot of the sense in the New Testament, because we just say you, but it's really y'all. It's you all. But what's interesting is he's clearly, he's speaking to the whole nation, but none of these are y'alls. Every one of them is you. There's an element that every single person who now hears the sound of God's voice is personally responsible to hear and to heed what the Lord of life is saying. And then notice the frame. I translate because I wanted you to see that Yahweh, because it's using that personal name that's so important. Then Moses comes in Genesis, uh, Exodus 3, the encounter of the burning bush. You know, who are you? I am who I am. I am Yahweh. You tell him, this is my name. And you're about to learn what my name means. And then notice in the first half, uh, in the first half, the phrase repeated, Yahweh, your God. That now becomes his name. It's Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God. And you notice the frame, the first word in the commandment, it begins with, I am Yahweh. Now here it's, it's I am, I am. So it begins, Yahweh, I am. This is who I am. And then notice the very last word in the commandments is neighbor. So the framing is it begins with how you're to love Yahweh and it ends with how you treat your neighbor. This is the frame. These are the two core relationships that define our life, how we relate to God and one another. And then there's some kind of historic, it's not really a historical debate, but you know, it's, it's a little tricky how many you know, commandments they are. Historically, it hasn't even been called the Ten Commandments. It's called the, the Decalogue or the Ten Words. In Hebrew and the Jewish tradition, it's the Ten Words. So these are God's Ten Words. And 
So they're interesting to think why that number 10. In Genesis chapter 1, 10 times it says, and God said. And then here there's a parallel where we're repeating these 10 words that God says. And then it's interesting because when God gives the plans for building the tabernacle, there's going to be uh, 10 lampstands and 10 tables of showbread and 10 water stands. And you see the connection between God's word, 10 lampstands, is his word that is the light to the world and illuminates our heart in his world. It's his word that man doesn't live on bread alone, but we live on the word that comes from the Father. And this 10 uh, stands of water, his word is the living water that brings life. So we're framing it, Yahweh, your God. Um, kind of historically, uh, Catholics have numbered it where the first command it begins, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. They kind of put that as one, command one, and then split the last one into covet kind of two parts. So you shall not covet, and then here's all the things you don't covet. Traditionally, Protestants, we kind of put them in a slightly different order, where the first command is you shall have no other gods, and then uh, the covet is just one. But there, there's a movement between the commands. Pull up, if we have the slide, or just kind of, I forgot to talk about this last week. But you can see there's kind of a movement in the first part of, of loving God. And I, my, just for balance sake, most people kind of break them down. Jesus gives the authoritative summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Very typical is commandments 1 through 4 about how do you love God. Commandments 5 through 10, how do you love your neighbor. Um, I think a little, just the balance, a little 5 and 5. And you can see, even literary, the, the structure and commandment five, it ends with Yahweh your God, it begins with Yahweh your God, this is how it's framed. And then there's, there's a movement about the internal heart, what you think about him, how you love him, you worship him. And then there's a movement to how you use your words, you don't take his name in vain, and then here's what you do. You honor his Sabbath, you remember it, and then you honor father and mother. And then how you love one another, there's a similar movement kind of backwards, it starts with certain deeds. Here are the things you do. Here's how you use your words. You don't bear false witness. And here's the state of your heart is to meant to be not in a position of, of coveting these other things. So there's this, this movement kind of from the internal out and then back in. Because one of the things we want to continue to see that these commands are meant to transform the heart. A couple other things that are just fascinating. Notice on the first, notice how it begins. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then the, the fifth command with honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. So now the frame is where you live. You live in this in-between time of what I've done. I've brought you out of this land and house of bondage and I'm bringing you into this land. So you're in the in-between and this is how you live there. So now let's kind of zero in quickly about just the command and then the call. So that first command, you shall have no other gods before me. So remember this is a polytheistic world. In the, in the polytheistic world, gods were local, they were tribal, and they were functional. So that's part of the drama of Exodus. Remember when Moses comes and says, we have met with Yahweh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? that I should obey him. 
That's not an atheistic question like, oh, let's pontificate whether God exists or not. He's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, in this realm, I'm God. Maybe over there in can't, wherever you're from, he, he can kind of have his say. But right here, I'm in charge. And so it's a polytheistic world. And then you would also look at the, the created order for the things you needed in life. So here, this, it's, it's worshiping, you know, uh, the, the sun was a god because you needed this light and life. And the Nile was a god. And you had fertility gods and different things like that. And the Nile. Um, so polytheistic world. So for, kind of one question is God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Notice how he sets it up. The preamble, the prelude, you can say, all right, well, what gives God the right to make this demand? And it says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have redeemed you. I have released you. I have defeated the enemies that were oppressing you. And one of the things you'll see as we go throughout the whole Bible is that all of these other idols, in many ways, they're a fraud. That's what Isaiah talks about. It's a fraud where you worship these carved images. You make them and then think that they're the ones who made you. There's none beside me. And then Paul develops that in 1 Corinthians even more. It says that behind some of them is the demonic activity of bringing people into bondage and slavery where they meant to steal, kill, and destroy your, your life. So you shall have no other gods. And then notice the interesting phrase, it's before me. Literally, it's before my face, in my presence. Don't bring any of the idols into God's presence. But then one of the challenges they'll learn is, right, don't bring any into God's presence. Well, where, where can we have them? Because then God is everywhere. And there's an interesting progression. You look at, you come up to the mountain, and then here on Mount Sinai, God's first giving that law. And in their mind, when they say, have no other gods before me, they're thinking all of the Egyptian deities that they had just seen and been immersed in for 400 years. And in the book of Joshua, it's going to say that wilderness generation, one of the hardest things for them was not surviving in the wilderness, but it was laying down the Egyptian deities that they worshipped. And then several hundred years later, a similar thing is going to be said by Elijah as he goes up on Mount Carmel. And there's fire again falls on the mountain and there's this battle between not the Egyptian gods and Yahweh, but Yahweh and the Canaanite gods of Baal. And the question is, all right, who are they going to worship? And then several hundred years later, Jesus will ascend a mountain. And then he will talk about, you can't serve God and Yahweh, your Lord, and mammon. At the same time, money, one of the gods of the Roman Empire. Now, it's interesting to think if Jesus came in and stood among us and said, All right, you shall have no other gods before me, what would the things that might come to his mind that he's attacking? What are the gods we're tempted to worship? I mean, none of us probably are tempted to worship Baal, and probably not the Nile River. But then what are we tempted to worship? What are the supreme deities in this American life? Years ago, Robert Bella, a famous sociologist, wrote a fascinating book called The Habits of the Heart. He has an interesting interview with a woman named Sheila Larson. And uh, the interview, uh, as he was trying to get at her religious convictions and belief, said, yes, of course, I believe in God, but I'm not a religious person. Actually, I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me through my entire life. And then he asked, well, what, what is that faith? What, what's its name? How would you define it? And she laughed and says, well, I guess I would call it Sheilaism. 
It's just my own little voice in my own little head. And so you just wonder, right, that's one of the, the, the dominant gods of our age. It's just me. We still live in a polytheistic world, but now instead of having one God per region, we have one God per person. And we say, I'm the God for at least this area. So Pharaoh would say, I'm the God for this, this geographical place. And we say, well, I'm the God for this geographical place. And so what would it mean to have no other gods when the God of our age is ourselves? Or maybe another way to think about it is Luther said that this first commandment, what is an idol? An idol is anything you're tempted to love, trust, or fear more than the Lord. So many idols, um, sometimes they can be obvious, you know, things like in the pagan world, but often things that can ascend to idol status are things that are really good gifts from the Lord that then take on a disproportionate importance in our life. And so you can use anything you're tempted to love, trust, or fear in the place of the Lord. You can kind of use the love test. And you think, all right, what are the love tests? What are the things that I really desire and love? And one of the tests is, all right, where does your mind naturally go when you don't have something you have to think about? What's your normal daydream destination? So Cynthia asks, what do you prefer, mountains or beach? What's your daydream destination? Some of you have already been there about two minutes into the sermon. <laughs> and you say, right, what, what, what do I daydream? What has captured my imagination? Or you think about the, the trust test when you're lonely or when you're discouraged. What do you look to? When you feel insecure, where do you naturally gravitate towards? What do you turn to? This is when we can, some turn to chemicals, some turn to things, some turn, you know, some, you talk about all the different types of therapy we have, like shopping therapy and other therapy. What do you turn to? Or what things can become our obsession, like job or politics or plans or families or social positions or science or medicine? And then what do you fear? What do you, what if you lost would cause, you know, this inordinate fear? Matthew Henry of this passage says, Pride makes a God of self. Covetous makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of your belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, fear or served, delighted in or depended on, more than God, whatever that is, that is an idol. So you think, all right, here's the command. Don't have any of these things before me. You have to get the priorities and the proportions right. Now, I want to illustrate this. Each time, I want to kind of open up the command and then think about illustrating this. <coughs> and I want to illustrate it with, to use the help of an image. So, Cody, go ahead and pull up this painting. It's going to be really hard to uh, see, but this is uh, a famous painting by um, Caravaggio called The Call of Matthew. It was started in 1599, finished in 1600. And some interesting things about this painting, uh, fun fact, his, his actual name is Michelangelo, but he thought there was already another uh, famous Renaissance artist who had that name and might have to come up with a different name if he was going to get known. And, um, but this painting, one of the things he specializes in is use of light, use of darkness. And one of the things don't get, some people get hung up on some of the Renaissance paintings, like Caravaggio knows 
that this is not what Jesus looked like. This is not what Matthew looked like. This is not what Roman tax collectors looked like in the first century Jerusalem. His idea of his painting is to try and incarnate the reality that they experienced in Florence in the 1590s. What would it be like if Jesus showed up then? And who would he call and speak to then? Now let's kind of get our characters. If you can see it, it's hard to see, but on the far right, the person pointing is Jesus. And right next to him is, is Peter. And then you have the collection of the tax collectors. And the guy in the middle kind of pointing at himself is, is Matthew. And a couple of things I just want you to notice is notice, um, notice about Jesus and his hand. His hand is, is, is sticking out. And one of the things Caravaggio did is he actually took from the Sistine Chapel, you know, the image of God reaching out and touching Adam. He took Adam's hand, but put it in the same position as God's hand. And one of the things he's saying is, this is the one who's extending his hand. This is God himself has, is embodied and incarnate, and it's God who is reaching out his hand to reclaim his people. And he's pointing to Matthew, calling him. And when he calls him, you see Matthew is the one sitting there like me. <laughs> like, are you talking to me? And you ever had that where he's just in a crowd and somebody calls you? I'm like, oh, he's... It can't be talking to me. And then you can't really see it, but these two guys here are two tax collectors. And it's hard to tell because Matthew's hand is on the money, on some money. And these two guys, they're looked down, they're locked into the cash. They do not even realize that the Lord of life is in their presence calling them to follow him. They are locked in on the gold. And Matthew's got one hand on the money, pointing, Jesus is calling him. You can't really see because Jesus' feet are already turned towards the door. So now is the moment of decision. Are you going to cling to the cash? Or are you going to follow me? And you can't really tell, but right in between Jesus and Matthew on the table is the money bag. This is the thing that's standing in between Matthew and Jesus following him. And his question is, will you hear and will you heed and will you uh, kind of lay your idol down so you can follow him. And one of the things that Matthew does in his gospel is he contrasts his following with another story of the rich young ruler. And Jesus comes to the rich young ruler and makes a very similar call. And you just kind of think about it, right? If you're Jesus' kind of PR guy, and you're trying to help him build his movement, and you have the opportunity for two different followers to come, and you're going to call, you're going to hire, who are you going to call? This guy, the guy who is seen as a traitor to his people, the guy who is a social outcast, who is not allowed in the synagogue, who's given himself over to selling out his own soul and his own people for the gold, are you going to have the rich young ruler? I mean, in many ways, the rich young ruler has three. If, you know, I don't know how many idols that are predominant in our pantheon. Self is definitely one. But maybe just under, if you kind of had to start stacking them up. I mean, he's got three that are probably going to be pretty popular in our world. He's rich, so he's got money. He's young. He's got youth. And if you think about it, that might be more of an idol than any of the others. 
Just started a fascinating book by uh, Andrew Root, who's talking about the how to maintain faith in a secular age, and it's this five-volume series, and the whole first one is how to respond, because he's a sociologist and says, over the last 60 years, the church in general has utterly capitulated itself to the cult of youth, and we're obsessed with being young and hip and with it. So I just started, I don't know what he says, but that's definitely an idol of Ari. So he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He has power. I mean, what else do you want in life? And then Jesus says, lay it all down and follow me. And then you'll have true riches. And then the question is, all right, which one experienced real life? One of them followed Jesus, one of them obeyed the first command, and the other one turned their back on Jesus. And at the end of their life, who do you think regrets their decision? Another book I started reading this year is Dan Pink. He's got a new book on uh, regret. So nothing like starting the new year off with reading a book about regrets. And he talks about you can kind of break regrets down into four categories, because this is another Trinity research project. I'd love somebody to help me research this, but my suspicion is that the most tattooed phrase in America is no regrets. Or maybe no regrets, but any... And he talks about how, you know, we kind of a cultural, one of the things we do is we do, we do not want to think about having any regrets, but they could be really powerful. And in his studies that he said, they kind of fall, all regrets, he says everybody over the age of about five has them. And they fall into four basic categories. You have the category we call foundational regrets, where you look back at a certain foundational season in your life and you think, ah, like, I wish I would have started giving more to my 401k in my 20s or not. I wish I would have, you know, paid more attention in school, kind of those foundational things. I feel that often. A couple years ago, I had a reading project where I was going to go back and read all the books I was supposed to read in college. So foundational regrets. So the next regrets is what we call boldness regrets, where people say, I just wish I would have uh, had this opportunity. I didn't take it. I wish I would have asked the girl out. I wish I would have spoken up in the opportunity. I wish I would have started the business. I wish. Boldness. Uh, another regret is relational regrets, where I, I allow these relationships to fracture or fall apart, and I wish I would have worked harder to hold them uh, together. So you have kind of these different categories. Um, of regrets, and I've lost my last three pages of notes, so I can't remember the fourth one, so I'll come back with that uh, next week, but there's these different regrets, and what's so fascinating is everybody feels them. Everyone feels these in certain areas. Oh, the fourth one is moral regrets, where you just look back and you say, "I, I, I just did something. I made a decision that I just regret. I wish I wouldn't have. And the beautiful gift, you look at this Matthew and you look at the, the rich young ruler and you go to Matthew now and say, all right, you had that moment where you were sitting at the tax collector's booth and in one hand you were holding all of the ill-gotten gain that you were clinging to with your life. And that was your path. You, you, this was what brought you love in life. This is what brought you uh, meaning, significance, hope. This is what you had given yourself to and you laid it down to follow Jesus do you regret it? Now, Matthew didn't have an easy life. In fact, Caravaggio's picture is probably like 50 feet high, and it's surrounded the altar. The other piece is, is there's two other uh, paintings. One's a beautiful painting of the inspiration of Matthew writing his gospel, and the final one is the scene of his martyrdom when he's being killed. And he said, right, do you regret it? And he said, regret it? 
Like, I just laid down that little bitty bag and look what I got. I became, I, like, I came across the Lord of life. And there is nothing I gave up that he did not pay back a hundredfold in me. Like, I wrote a book that has been more influential than almost any other book in the history of literature. That's pretty good. My name is one of the 12 names written as a foundational stone of the new Jerusalem. That's what I got when I laid down my idol of money. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal. And one of the gifts of the first commandment, on the one hand, the first commandment is God's gift to you because he says, this is God's pathway so you do not have to live a life of regret. If you give yourself to these, you don't have to live locked in to these regrets. This is what can help. This is a path to keep you from regret. That's the gift of the law. But the gift of the gospel and the gift of Christ is the gift of the gospel is he uh, doesn't just keep, can't keep you from your regrets. He'll redeem you in them. He'll redeem you out of them. And kids, it's on your bulletin. One of the things we're going to say every week is how does Jesus keep the law for us? He teaches us the law perfectly. He keeps it holy and then he pays the penalty for us when we break it. And so the gospel is God's gift to us to redeem us out of those regrets. So why is it good news that God will not share his glory and praise with any other idol? Because no other idol can bring you life. It's all um, mirrors and mirage. Everything else will bring death. This is the one. It's good news that he won't share because it's good news that he is the one who will forgive you when you fail him and bring you to the fullness and completion of who you were meant and made to be. And so every week we celebrate that. We come to the Lord's table and we celebrate the fact that his body was broken so we can be put back together again. And part of that symbolism is even in our best attempts to keep the law, when we break it, we need somebody who can make us whole again. And we come to him. He's the one who makes us whole. And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. So when we fail to keep his law and we live and we, we feel the pressure of those own regrets whispering into our ear, we can turn to him and say, it's all true, but my Lord is the Yahweh, my God. See, the beautiful phrase is that this is Yahweh, your God. And how is he your God? He's your God through faith and repentance. We turn to him in hope. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word and the gift of your command to teach us the way. And then we thank you for the gift of your shed blood who, for, who will forgive us for all the ways that we fall short. And then we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who comes to remake us and restore us and, and fix the things that have been broken. So we ask that you help all of us in, in the manifold ways that we need to experience your redeeming and recreating grace, that we will experience that. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Here at Trinity each week we come to the table and we'll have four servers in each place. There'll be a gluten-free one in the back corner. And then you, once they're in place, you come.
offering and we transition to offering and part of the symbolism as we celebrate we come to the Lord's table as he has given us the greatest gift he can give is he didn't spare his own son and then we joyfully give back to him what he has blessed us with and there's a couple different ways that Trinity can give you can give online or in the box in the back and one of the things we're going to try and start start doing on a semi-regular basis is having a moment of missions as we think about going out into the world and how's God now sending us to be his people into the world and one of the great gifts of our church is we have so many people who are so connected and in tune with what God is doing in the world and so this morning Dave and Sally Hunter are going to come up and share a little bit about a trip they're going to go on they're leaving on Wednesday so we can join and pray for them if you don't know Dave and Sally they're staples in men's and women's Bible study and uh, Dave's a retired uh, doctor uh, who's one of is in the the path at our church to become one of our elders and we're just so thankful for their wisdom and and kindness and, and the way they love and encourage us but Dave come, where's Dave Dave come on up good morning as he said uh, we're Dave and Sally Hunter um, first of all we're just the first to be chosen to kick this new mission moment off. There's so many of you that travel all the time and do missions and are full-time workers and we're so grateful for you. And we wanna get you up here in future mission moments and have you share the work that you do for the Lord. Uh, we are going on Wednesday as, and we wanna think of ourselves as an extension of this church's ministry. Uh, we are going to Cambodia and the Philippines. In Cambodia, I will teach ultrasound, and I've done this for a few years now. Uh, we're going to be working at a uh, hospital that was started by Dr. Mark Ambrose, who works with Mission to the World. Sally will work with his wife, um, Laura Ambrose, at a uh, young lady's home young ladies rescued out of the sex trade and they're doing a wonderful work they work through the government and they you know it's amazing a couple of girls are in medical school a couple of them are in college all of them are being educated they're they're healthy um, we will then proceed to the Philippines Lord willing where we will join a medical team I will perform ultrasound exams and Sally will work in the lab and pharmacy You'll see some of the pictures here teaching in uh, Cambodia and then and then working at the clinics in pharmacy uh, in uh, Philippines uh, we just want to um, uplift the church in the Philippines you know we'll work as a, a medical team you can imagine that when a medical team comes in these small Filipino churches the people in the community say wow you know like what do they have going on that they can bring in a team from the US a team of doctors and so it, it really helps them build the church and so church planting is our goal uh, we just want to ask you all to join us in the way of prayer prayer for the people to whom we will minister um, our funding has been provided but you can go with us by by lifting us up and lifting up the uh, the people a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9 reads as follows. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom um, people believed. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his reward according to his labor. God is at work in the world and graciously allows us to join him in what he is doing, and he'll do it with or without us, but he lets us join. We invite you, therefore, to share in God's kind and generous reward by praying for the people in Cambodia and the Philippines. And wherever else, if you know, other, I know there's people going to Africa and different places around the globe, uh, lift them up as well. Uh, and we'll hear from them in, in future um, um, mission moments. In this way, by prayer, from God's point of view, you will truly be part of our medical mission. Thank you.